If you'll take out your sermon outline, I should say uh, it's from Genesis chapter 45. So we work our way through the book of Genesis. We're starting to wind down, coming to the end of the Joseph story in Genesis. Again, we have a long chapter today in Genesis 45. So let's uh, open with a word of prayer and we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures. And as always, thank you for making us your people. You have brought us to a not-so-difficult passage this morning, one filled with joy and reunion and loving reconciliation. So, Lord, help us not to simply smile and take it for granted, but ask that you would use it to warn us, to instruct us, to give us wisdom, to lead us towards righteousness, work your word into our lives this morning. By the power of your Spirit, bring about the reconciliation that each of us needs in our lives. For this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, we're going to be doing some traveling uh, this summer. Um, after General Assembly in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, this week, we'll be immediately heading out to St. Louis, Missouri, to see Sarah and Andy, our daughter and son-in-law, and next Sunday I'll get to baptize my new grandson James in their church. So very excited about uh, that. And then the next weekend we'll be heading uh, to Jacksonville, Florida. Yes, we'll be driving from St. Louis, Missouri to Jacksonville, Florida, a mere 16 hours. Uh, for my parents' 60th anniversary, 6-0. Um, so, uh, looking forward to that. That's a, a, a milestone that few people reach in this life. And so we want to celebrate that with them. There'll be a few other trips this summer, and most of these trips we drive, but at least one will be flying. And, uh, and I love going to the airport. I don't like the security part and the waiting in line part. But once you get through all that, and, you know, you buy another bottle of water because they took the other one away and you get there and, you know, and you're, you're waiting. And a lot of times you're at the gate and you're waiting for the plane to arrive. And this doesn't happen so much in Dulles anymore because of all the security measures. But in a lot of smaller airports around the country, it still happens. They still let lots of people go out to the gate to meet incoming uh, family and uh, I love watching these people come off the plane. I, I just like people watching. Um, but they come off the plane. I don't know anything about these people. I don't know anything about their relationships except what I see there. And sometimes there's people sort of waiting, you know, for them to clear. And even today, they'll be waiting when you finally get through all the stuff. And, you know, it takes about 15 minutes after you get off the plane till you get to baggage at Dulles. But... There'll be people waiting there for their loved ones to arrive. And you can see them because people start coming out and they, they start doing this, you know, standing up on tippy toes and craning their neck and they're looking for the person they're waiting for. And you can overhear them. No, I don't, I don't see him yet. He hasn't gotten off yet. And they're kind of looking. And then all of a sudden, one almost went, there he is. 
you think the president was getting off the plane, you know? And if there's children waiting, they're going to break through the crowd, and they're going to be the first one to get to grandpa or dad or whoever it is. And soon the whole family is embracing and crying and loved ones who are reunited after a separation. It's a joy to watch. And it's the joy of relationships. And it's not an exaggeration to say that relationships are the most important thing in life because the two greatest commandments in the Bible have to do with relationships, first towards God and then towards one another. And whenever you see broken relationships, broken relationships towards God, broken relationships in a family, broken relationships in a church, you know it's not pleasing to God. God is in the business of reconciling broken relationships. Perhaps there's nothing so moving as witnessing a fractured family being reconciled or reunited. And I think that's why Genesis 45 is such a moving chapter. We're being allowed to look in on the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers after 22 years of estrangement and separation. And after Judah's impassioned plea on behalf of Benjamin and their father at the end of Genesis 44, Joseph saw that his brothers had truly repented of their terrible sin of selling him into slavery. So let's turn to Genesis 45 and let's see how this story of reconciliation plays out. It begins with a shocking revelation. A shocking revelation, verses 1 through 3. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed. At his presence. So now, finally, after four chapters of waiting, Joseph lets himself go in this torrent of emotion, telling his brothers through his tears, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Now he knows that his dad is still alive, but he wants to hear it again just to make sure. And imagine the rush of confusion and sheer fear which must have swept over Joseph's brothers. They hear this Egyptian viceroy, this prime minister, this governor, the number two guy in the, in the whole land, stand up and say, I am Joseph. They've been dealing with him quite a while now. This is their second trip. They've had numerous conversations with him. And Judah has just finished his appeal when he sees this viceroy's chest begin to heave with emotion. And the brothers couldn't have known whether he was angry or sad or what. And then he shouts something in Egyptian, and all his, his attendants leave the room. And then he breaks into this prolonged, loud sobbing. And the text compresses the story, but as you know, it takes a few minutes for someone who is sobbing to calm down enough to talk. And then of all things, he speaks to them in Hebrew. Until now, he'd only spoken in Egyptian through an interpreter. And for 22 years, they have spread the rumor that Joseph was dead. 
to the point where they believed it themselves. And to hear Joseph speak is like hearing a dead man talk. And to hear this powerful ruler now say, I am Joseph. After what they had done to him, their blood just ran cold. The word translated in verse 3 as dismayed means to be terrified. It's used to describe the feeling that would sweep over a group of men in battle when suddenly the enemy turns on them and they realize they're doomed. It's the exact word used in Judges chapter 20. We read, the men of Israel turned and the men of Benjamin were dismayed for they saw that disaster was close upon them. So Joseph's brothers must have thought, they heard this and they're thinking, this is it. We've had it. We're done for. And they're struck speechless. In fact, up till verse 15, Joseph does all the talking. And the brother's shock over who this man was could only have been increased by what he said. Because instead of words of revenge, which is obviously what they expected, what they heard were words of reassurance. Words of reassurance, verses 3 through 8. Through his tears, Joseph sees this paralyzing terror. Starting again at verse 3. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now this clarification of his identity, while intended to comfort them, probably increased their fear because he says, whom you sold, remember? And so then Joseph goes on hurriedly to calm them down. He continues fairly tenderly, verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land in Egypt. So finally they're able to talk. And you can just imagine if you're like in the room, what a conversation they must have had. As far as they can tell, there's, there's no anger, there's no bitterness. They would have expected him to say something like, you guys treated me like dirt for 22 years. I've been waiting for this moment, and now you're going to get it. But there's no hint of revenge. Instead, Joseph speaks kindly to him. He shows every intention of treating them well. He promises to provide for them and for their children through the coming years of famine. And he finished by kissing not only Benjamin, who hadn't been a part of the conspiracy against him, but also each of his brothers weeping on their shoulders. It must have blown them away. They were just total shock. And notice there's not a hint of rebuke, only encouragement. It's apparent that Joseph has already forgiven his brothers. His repeated soothing statement, God sent me before you, sort of qualifies and softens the you sold me, indicating that he's forgiven them, he's attempting to ease their guilt. 
And Joseph shows us the key to being reconciled to those who have deeply hurt us, whether they're family members or friends. The key to reconciliation is your attitude, and the key to your attitude is submitting yourself to a sovereign God. Submitting yourself to a sovereign God. The remarkable thing about Joseph's life is not his brilliance. It's not his administrative ability, although he's certainly gifted there. It's his attitude, especially in response to such unfair treatment. And the reason for his attitude is his relationship with a sovereign God. It's pretty evident that Joseph has spent the last two decades praying and thinking and rethinking and praying about what has gone on and what has happened to him. And God's given him wisdom. Just as Joseph had been given insight about the divine plan and the dreams of Pharaoh, he knew the divine plan and the affairs of his brothers. So now Joseph strips away this sort of superficial surface of human scheming to reveal the hand of God behind it. And most revealing, there's four references to God here. Verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And verse 9, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. These lines are a commanding theological declaration of divine providence, that God works his will in and through the actions of all people, whether or not those people are good or bad. And providence is explicit in Joseph contrasting what his brothers did with the work of God. In verse 5, he says, you sold me, God sent me. In verse 8, it was not you, it was God. Joseph understood that in every episode of his life and that of his brothers is under God's direct rule. Now understand that Joseph's not giving his brothers a theology lesson to set them straight. He's trying to comfort trembling and scared and fearful hearts. And how comforting to know that their sins, even though they had caused immense pain to Joseph and immense pain to their father and many others, had not thwarted the plan of God, but had actually been used to bring it about, to preserve life, verse 5, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and keep alive for you many survivors, verse 7. And so we see that Joseph's wise and gracious words are bringing about reconciliation. Reconciliation, verses 9 through 15. Now Joseph is effecting reconciliation with his brothers, and it's made possible by two things. First, his brother's admission of guilt, which we saw in uh, chapter 44, and repentance. And second, by the forgiveness of Joseph that had been encouraged and enabled by his knowledge of God's providence. So we see in the key verse of the whole Joseph story in Genesis 50, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So this difficult past has undergone this kind of alteration as Joseph embraces God's providence and forgives his brothers from his heart. And believers who see and embrace who God is and what he is doing in their lives and in others' lives are able to forgive. The hatred and unwillingness to forgive 
comes from hearts that are ignorant of God and ignorant of God's word and ignorant of God's providence. And now having calmed his brothers down with the comfort of the knowledge of God and his forgiveness and Joseph's forgiveness, he commissions them to bring back his father and do it quickly. The charge begins and ends with an admonition to hurry, starting at verse 9. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. So then comes immediately after the emotional reconciliation we get in verse 14. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So we see the reconciliation is with all of his brothers. He embraces his little brother Benjamin and wept on his neck and Benjamin on his. So many tears, so much joy. But it's the same with his older brothers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Confessions are probably both whispered and, and just bawled out. Forgiveness is right, reiterated. And whatever the order, it's the same with all his other brothers, with Judah and Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher and Issachar and Zebulon. There's kisses and weeping, weeping and kisses. All the guilt is gone. Overwhelming joy and love just seems to envelop them. And I imagine they just talked and talked and talked and talked. And they had 20-some years times 12 brothers. That's 240 plus years of catching up. But the good news doesn't stop there. Because clearly the news of the reconciliation of Joseph's family is traveling up and down the Nile. And when it makes it to Pharaoh's palace, it results in royal generosity. Royal generosity, verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts, and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The land of Goshen is also known as the land of Ramses. It's in the eastern Nile Delta. It's a very fertile district. So here at the close of Genesis, God is blessing his people with a shadow of Eden. With a shadow of the Garden of Eden. When Pharaoh restates Joseph's promise, he twice tells him he's going to give them the best of all the land, verses 18 and 20. 
He's consciously or unconsciously echoing the repeated goods of the land that were given to uh, Adam. And we know from later on in Genesis 47, it's exactly where they're going to end up. Genesis 47 tells us um, the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And then it says Joseph settled his father and his brothers, gave him possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land in the land of Ramses as Pharaoh has commanded. One Old Testament commentator remarks, the picture of Joseph is a picture of restoration. Not just the restoration of the good fortune of Jacob, but the restoration of the blessing that was promised through the offspring of Jacob. So the brothers set out for home. Joseph uh, presides over this uh, memorable departure, picking up at verse 21. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons, according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Now, the clothes, I think, are intentional symbols of reconciliation. Remember, Joseph's clothing was central to his rejection and betrayal. And so now, very memorably, clothing is bestowed by Joseph on his brothers in reconciliation. And five changes for Benjamin. No one seems to care. And then there's this sort of parting shot. Do not quarrel on the way. And despite the goodwill, it's still pretty appropriate because you know if they got to make this long journey back to Canaan, the, the squabbling and recriminations and sort of that reliving the past, that could happen so easily on that slow journey uh, back to Canaan, you know, as they're talking about uh, who did what to Joseph. You know, you were the one who argued for the pit. No, it was you who said that we should sell him to the caravan. You never liked him anyway, you know, and it would just get worse and worse. So Joseph basically tells the brothers to cool it. And so they journey back to Canaan, and they're loaded up with ten donkeys laden with good things, ten female donkeys loaded with food, plus all the wagons, and they go home to an unexpected revival. An unexpected revival. Their journey takes them across the Nile, across the Sinai, through the Arabah wilderness, and across the Jordan. And pick up the story at verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told them all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, notice they changed the name from Jacob to Israel. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now there's a very revealing little statement in there about Jacob. It says, his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. So he's got years and years and years of his son's lies 
with which they have hidden their guilt for years and rightly poisoned his trust in them. And such sins sort of soil and ruin everything. And he has to wonder, what self-serving cruelty are my sons carrying out now? And literally, it's telling us that Joseph, or Jacob's heart became weak, as in he thought he might die. But his repentant sons, including Simeon, fresh from prison, and Benjamin, whole and enthusiastic, are telling him this astonishing story of Joseph and all his honor in Egypt. And when he sees the wagons and the donkeys loaded with good things far beyond their means, the text tells us, end of verse 27, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. The gray hair suddenly takes on new life. I like that part. Likely with the help of his sons, he recalls Joseph's dream, how everyone would bow down to him, which they now have four times if you've been following along. And he would rejoice. Because even more important is his lament at the very beginning of the story is finally put to rest where he told them that, remember Jacob said, if you go, my soul will go down in sorrow to Sheol. But that doesn't happen. His spirit is revived and now he's going to journey to see his son and die in peace. So there's great optimism in this story. And yet there's this great reminder of who's behind it all. And that's God. Verse 5 again. God sent me to preserve life. Joseph says, verse 7, God sent me to preserve for you many survivors. And as we'll read later again, the key verse of the Joseph story from Genesis 50, God meant it for good. Most Genesis commentators will say the God of Genesis is a God of mercy and grace who answers Jacob's desperate prayer. From two chapters ago, in chapter 43, he said, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. That prayer is now answered. He gave him mercy and he returned his sons. And God has answered that prayer far beyond his wildest dreams. And in so doing, God is proving his control of events, but also keeping his promise to the patriarchs that they should have a multitude of descendants, or as Joseph puts it, a great number of survivors. But the story isn't over yet. Because you see, there's some reading between the lines. There's some unspoken parts. There is some dark clouds behind the silver lining here. And there's what I've called the dark clouds of bright providence. Like I said, that was original with me, but one of the Puritans said it. So, they were smart guys. There's a dark cloud, almost invisible, but nevertheless, it's present here in this bright providence. In fact, there's two dark clouds in this passage. The first dark cloud is that even in this kindness of Pharaoh in inviting the sons of Israel down uh, into Egypt and giving them the best of all the land, this is a turning point. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of Genesis 15, where the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 
hundred years. Thirty chapters ago, God told Abram, your descendants, your offspring, are going to be sent to another land. They're going to suffer there for 400 years. Well, that's about to happen because we know the whole story. And we know that this salvation in Egypt is going to end up in 400 years of slavery. But God's providence leads to God's providence. Because this joyous and happy providence of Genesis 45 is setting up years of suffering. But they're meaningful years. Because it's in the context of being strangers in a strange land that Israel is kept a pure race. Because they could never mix with the Egyptians. Because they themselves had their own desire to maintain a pure race. It's not that the Israelites wouldn't marry the Egyptians. They clearly would. It's that the Egyptians would refuse to marry the Israelites. And that brought safety for the Hebrew people as they grew from this large extended family into a great nation for those upcoming 400 years in Egypt. Generations were sent into slavery in Egypt so there would be a pure Hebrew race to return to Canaan. You know, the constant battle of Old Testament history, if you look through the whole sweep of the Old Testament, is Israel's failure to honor God and obey God because they intermarry, they mix with the Canaanites. And it's not an ethnic issue or a race issue. It's a faith issue. Over and over and over again, God tells them, if you intermarry with these unbelieving people, they're going to lead your heart astray and you'll chase after idols. And that happens again and again and again and again. In fact, it's the reason for the exile, which is still hundreds of years in the future. But not yet. Not now, because now God plops them down right in the middle of Egypt, the one place where they can't mix with the other nations. In order that he can preserve a people, a pure people dedicated to himself. And at the right time, he'll bring them back into the land of Canaan. And God's providence is preparing for God's providence. And even in this happy time, he's preparing for a difficult but meaningful providence in the future of his people. That's the first sort of dark cloud. They're going to go to slaves to Egypt, but there's a reason behind it. It's the one place where they will be kept pure and faithful to Yahweh. And there's another one here. You see in verse 22, one of the poignant verses of this passage. You know, remember while his brothers had stolen that fabulous coat of many colors that his father had given him so many years ago and tore it all up. You can see now what he's sending them back with to Canaan. Garments. That's what the translation says. It's very likely these garments are festive, colorful robes of fine Egyptian linen. Can you imagine his brothers receiving their own coat of many colors from Joseph? The one that they had taken the coat of many colors off of and had left him for dead. You see the heart of this man and the grip of the grace of God and trusting in the providence of God, but it is the second dark cloud, isn't it? 
because it clearly tells us the brothers are not yet done with their repentance and humiliation. Because they've got to go back and tell dad Joseph is still alive. Could you imagine the disclosure of the story? To have to stand before their father Jacob and say, Dad, we need to tell you about something. Something that happened over 20 years ago. Something horrible. Something that we did. We deceived you. We lied about Joseph. Joseph is still alive. Jacob's been deceived for 22 years. So this isn't just, hey, guess what? We found a son who was missing. He was deceived into believing that Joseph was dead. And now they've got to explain how that's not really exactly what happened. And we're not told the specifics of that part. We're actually spared that scene by Moses in his wisdom in accordance with the providence of God. But again, we see God's providence preparing for God's providence, preparing for the repentance of the brothers, preparing for the suffering of the children of Israel. God's providence is wise and he knows what he's doing. And it's God who informed Joseph's heart as to the ultimate good that would triumph over his brother's evil deeds. It's God who gave him the grace to forgive. And without forgiveness, there never would have been reconciliation, regardless of his brother's repentance. So what does that have to do with us? Today, on this side of the cross, we can be reconciled because Christ forgives all who come to him in faith and repentance. There's still forgiveness. There's still repentance. Second Corinthians 5 tells us, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, God, made him Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Think about God's providence on your worst day. And then think about Christ's forgiveness. How in Christ, God was reconciling you to himself, not counting your trespasses against you. You need to pray and you need to thank him for that reconciliation. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, we too have tasted of your providence in our own lives. We've known things which were uh, so bitter we thought they would turn us inside out and destroy us. And we've known things that were so full of joy that we couldn't contain it. And we've known things that were so uh, confusing we, we couldn't understand. We just thought our minds would just blow up. And we've known grief so great and so dark that we thought we'd never see daylight again. But in this passage, you remind us that your providence is good and wise. 
So we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to trust in it and not just to trust in it, to, to glory in it and to glorify you for it. For we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.